want the rest of you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is a passage that we, uh, we looked at earlier in our uh, series here on stewardship. While you're turning there, let me just mention that uh, today is the date for you know, Commitment Sunday, um, and if you would like to participate in the stewardship campaign, there's a, um, not really a box, but a barrel in the foyer, and your commitment card can go in there. There's, uh, uh, John Klinger uh, will be on hand to, to play his trumpet uh, for each of you, you know, as you, as you place your gift in, and he'll announce, you know, no? Right. He's shaking his head no. Um, dang it. Yeah, really, there's, uh, there's really no, no ceremony here. Uh, this is between you and the Lord, and we want to keep it that way. This, uh, um, and that's been a real core value for this whole, whole campaign. Uh, just what the Lord's doing in our own hearts, really not anyone feeling cornered um, or pressured. So the commitment cards, uh, yeah, we'll collect them today. We'll collect them next Sunday as well. Uh, December 4th is going to be a fun Sunday. That's when we'll, uh, we'll announce the, the total and, and just give thanks for whatever the Lord has done uh, in reducing or possibly eliminating the entire debt. And our prayer, our goal through all this is to release those resources that are currently being spent on the mortgage and, uh, and have more for growing our ministry, growing our missions, our mercy, and even continuing to multiply congregations. So uh, that's really the end game here. Um, so this is our last in the, the stewardship series, and I, I love that we're wrapping up with, with joy and with thanksgiving. And so if you have your place in 2 Corinthians 9, let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to read verses 6 through 15. This is... Um, a place where Paul is wrapping up his remarks about a collection for the saints who are suffering in Jerusalem. And he says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Father, thanks for your word. And thank you for the gift of Jesus 
and we pray that we would see him and know him and worship him and love him more clearly uh, through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Um, we're, we're not really going to, to discuss the, the dynamics of, of Paul's uh, campaign here on behalf of the saints in Jerusalem, but I want to I zero in on verse 7 as we conclude and talk about what I think is a familiar verse or statement for many of us, um, that God loves a cheerful giver. And, and I want to expand on that a little bit. I think, first of all, it's good to recognize God loves giving um, and that he loves givers. Uh, and he especially loves it when that giving is cheerful. Um, and he also loves not just cheerful giving, but repentant giving. Um, giving that is turning from the, the things that war against generosity, that war against grace in our hearts so that we experience more and more of, of the kingdom of God. So let's talk about that. Let's, let's begin by talking about how God loves giving. He loves a giver. And you see that uh, in verse 6. Um, even if you don't have a, a background in the Bible or the church, you've probably heard the statement that whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully is going to reap bountifully. This principle behind whatever you reap, you will sow. Um, and then Jesus says something very similar to that. Paul is really just giving an echo of how uh, in the Gospel of Luke, we hear Jesus saying that if you give, it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Um, this is that dynamic. It's a very you know, direct relationship between what we give and what God gives back to us. And it happens over and over again. You see it throughout the Bible. It's a lesson that God keeps teaching us because A, it's important, and because B, I think we're, we're a little bit slow to learn. Um, there's a reason why Jesus taught more about money and material possessions than he did about heaven or about hell combined. Uh, we need to hear about this. Uh, it's, it's not just something that uh, we consign to, you know, <laughs> uh, televangelists whose, uh, whose motives are sometimes, you know, questionable uh, to greedy pastors or greedy churches or whatever. Certainly, um, we all need to be wary of that. But we also need to, to be confronted with what is very, very important uh, and repeated often in the scriptures. So, uh, looking at verse 7... We're talking about how each one must give, okay? That's a statement that you see very plainly. Each one must give, uh, and that is qualified by saying that he must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Um, when, when Paul was Going back over, retracing his steps from his first missionary journey, he takes a, a stopover in an area called Miletus, and he calls for the elders from Ephesus to meet him there, and he just wants to give them some final words before he, Paul continues on his journey. And, and part of that, um, that, that very, very special, very, very strategic meeting is he reminds them that it's more blessed to give than to receive. So God loves giving. He loves those who give, but he also says that he does not love uh, giving that is reluctant or under compulsion. 
Um, he doesn't love it when we would rather hold on to our goods than give them away, and they have to be pried out of our fingers uh, in order for us to, to release them. Um, and this is sadly not uncommon, uh, and it comes into some graphic detail in you know, certain episodes uh, through history. There was a, uh, a shipwreck of the SS Central America. It's a steamship that that sank in a hurricane off of the coast of Cape Hatteras in 1857. And this is one of the, 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 the second leg of a, a trip that originated in San Francisco. There was a steamship that would take passengers from San Francisco down to Panama and then back from Panama, coming from the east, going to California in the gold rush. Uh, but it would take those, um, you know, 49ers and all of the, uh, the U.S. Treasury supply of gold that had been mined and put into bars, into coins, and it would take those incredible payloads from San, uh, from San Francisco to Panama. It would be trucked across uh, the, uh, the, uh, the isthmus. Is that right? No. Whatever that narrow strip of land was before the canal. And then they'd get on another uh, steamboat, steamship, and go up the Atlantic coast to New York. And that's where the Central America took on its passengers and it was halfway on its journey before it sank, and 200, or 425 souls were lost and 30,000 pounds of gold. Not just the, the possessions from some of those who had been uh, toiling day in and day out in the mountains of, Cal of California, but also the, the treasury amount. You know, this, this hoard, I know it's a, uh, you know, not easy to see, but you can see on the bottom of the ocean, this collection of coins and such, and then this is what's been recovered, the, the bars of gold and, uh, and the coins and stuff that that was supposed to go to the U.S. Treasury. Um, so incredible amount of money was lost. That bar of gold that you see in the bottom right-hand corner is the largest form of currency, the most expensive form of currency in the world right now. It, it's sold in... 2001 or something like that for $8 million, bar of gold. Um, what they say is that a, a bar of gold is like a, a brick, a brick of gold. This weighs four pounds, just a standard house brick. Um, but I had to, you know, just to let you know, this is a gold brick, and it weighs 50 pounds. And uh, I wanted you to see one of these. I picked one. Kathy and I had a few laying around. And... Uh, <laughs> But I wanted you to understand how heavy these are. And, um, you know, we're going to put this in the barrel uh, after, after we're done here. But um, that, that weight, that density of, uh, of gold, uh, as that ship was sinking, uh, and as people were considering, what do I do in the face of, uh, I need to swim, or I need to get on a life raft, but I've got, you know, 50, 100, 200 pounds of gold on me, and what am I going to do uh, in the face of either life or death? Uh, let me read to you a couple of, of accounts. It's from a book called Ship of Gold, and some of the survivors were interviewed, and, and, and here's what they relayed about what was happening as that ship was sinking, as if to dramatize the hysteria of such a dilemma, one man ripped open a bag containing $20,000 in gold dust 
and sprayed it about the main cabin as though he were a pixie, and the gold were nothing more than tiny grains of sand. Others unhitched treasure belts, upended purses, and snapped open carpet bags, flinging the shiny coins and dust across the floor. Hundreds of thousands of dollars were thus thrown away, said a passenger. One man had a satchel filled with $825 double eagle gold pieces fresh from the San Francisco Mint. Um, So in today's money, each one of those uh, coins was worth about $800. Times 825, um, you know, we're talking about almost half a million dollars. And he takes all of these coins, he retrieved these from his stateroom, and according to a witness, flung them onto the floor of the captain's cabin, telling the men to help themselves. But no one did. Purses filled with gold lay untouched. Amid the shouting and confusion, some men stood topside in a resigned daze and tossed gold coins at the wind. That's what happens when you realize the real value of gold. None of them were going to take any of that gold with them. And if they were going to survive that wreck, they had to get rid of anything that would imperil their ability to swim. They were giving their gold away, very reluctantly, under incredible compulsion. It's not the kind of giving that excites God. It's not the kind of giving that defines a heart that is changed by the grace of the gospel. And so that's why God says, look, I don't want your reluctant gifts. We also know that God not only does not love a reluctant giver, he doesn't love a a stingy giver, which actually is an oxymoron. Um, God does not love a Scrooge, uh, somebody who is greedy and who doesn't give. And so this kind of puts us into a corner. It's a bit of a dilemma. Um, God doesn't love a reluctant giver, and so in our thinking, we might go, okay, I I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. Um, I... you know, I'm a little reluctant about what I'm, I'm about to do. Uh, and so maybe, it, maybe it's better if I don't give. Um, and so that's how I'm going to avoid being a hypocrite. That's how I'm going to keep my integrity. And, uh, and everything's good because God does not want me to give as a reluctant person or under compulsion. But neither does God want me to be greedy and materialistic and hoard my wealth and be a Scrooge. And so I'm supposed to give. And now, now I'm stuck because um, if I don't give, um, you know, I'm stingy. And if I do give, I feel like a hypocrite. What do I do? It's a false dilemma. But sadly, one that a lot of Christians and people can fall into. There's a third way. There's a third option. And that's to recognize that God not only uh, loves cheerful givers, he loves repentant givers. What's a repentant giver? Well, a repentant giver is one who knows that, um, well, that his heart's not in it. He's not feeling it. Feels a bit reluctant. He feels like, you know, okay, I'm, 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 uh, I, my heart is hard. 
But I want to acknowledge that. I want to confess that. Uh, I want to believe that God really will fulfill his promises, that he really does pour into my lap blessings uh, for what I give, that Jesus wasn't lying. And, uh, and I'm going to, this act of giving is not going to be the act of a hypocrite. It's going to be a, a, a hammer blow against a heart that is otherwise hard and cold. And then that person is not a, a, a who, who is giving that gift is no longer a hypocrite. Uh, he is a faithful, obedient, believing disciple, repenting of his reluctance. Or look at the person who is feeling a bit stingy, uh, a bit greedy, and she uh, is going to give as a repentant giver because she doesn't want to be a Scrooge. Scrooge et. Um, she doesn't want to be stingy and greedy, and so she's going to ask the Lord, please forgive me for being greedy and you know hoarding wealth and so on, and let this act of giving be an act of defiance against my materialistic heart. Uh, let it be a war cry, and then that person is no longer you know uh, stingy. They are repenting, believing growing disciple. Uh, that's a repentant giver, and that's really what honors uh, God as we give, because none of us, I think, do any act of obedience with a 100% pure motive. Uh, we all continue to wrestle with sin south of heaven. And so even on our best days, we need to repent of, you know, that percentage, whatever it is, of, you know, selfish motive. But on our worst days, we can repent a lot and still do what is right, still do what is good, still do what God promises to bless. Um, I was struck in working on this series when reading about John the Baptist. This was when Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. And everybody's coming to John the Baptist. And if you remember this passage, it's in Luke 3. And everybody's going out to John the Baptist, and he's teaching them, and he's preaching, and he's saying things like, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, uh, for I tell you that God can raise up from these stones, you know, children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, even every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Um, so John is saying, you need to demonstrate, you know, the fruit of repentance. Don't just give lip service to it. Um, don't hang on to the things of this world if you're trying to enter into the next world. And then what, what struck me was each of the three categories of people that follow up and come to John, we get an account of this, uh, are all talking about sort of the same thing. Listen. So the crowds asked John, what shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. So John's point is to demonstrate the fruit of your repentance by sharing. Share your material goods, share your possessions, care for the poor. Next group comes up to him. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to John, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Translation, don't be greedy. He tells one group, 
to share and care for the poor. He tells the next group, don't be greedy. A third group come up to him. Soldiers also asked John, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. So translation, don't be greedy, but positively, be content. So share with others, don't be greedy, be content. Each one of those three um, things that, that are pointed out in relationship to what does repentance look like all have to do with our material goods. They all have to do with money. And then we're told with many other, many other, are those other different or other similar? You know, it's kind of up to us to, to, to guess. My guess is similar. With many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Uh, this whole theme seems intentional on John the Baptist's part, and I think it's something that all of us you know, need to hear whether we kind of acknowledge it or not. Uh, all of us need to repent of how we're using our, our money. None of us has it 100% right. And, you know, there's other categories to be sure, but I'm just going to throw out a few categories. Probably one of these fits you, and probably one of these is where you or I or, you know, anybody else is going to have to say, all right, Lord, I need you to work on my heart here. Because there are some who, out of their love for money, what they really love, the reason why they're pursuing uh, gold is because what they love is pleasure. And they want fun, and they want celebration, and they want a party, and they want it you know, now, and they're spending their money on whatever feels good. Or uh, there are those who equally are spending their money because they want status. And they're spending their money on you know, nice cars, nice houses, nice vacations, nice clothes, whatever, so that people see you know, how much money they have. Um, they love money because they love status and they love what people think of them as rich people. And these are the folks who are spending their money, right? Because they love certain things that money's going to get them. Others are not spending their money, but they're saving money. But they, they're loving money because they love something else. Maybe they love power. And because they love power... They're amassing and hoarding their wealth because that gives them influence. That gives them power over other people because, all right, you've got the money and I need money and so I'm in your debt and I'll do whatever you say. Or they love, not maybe don't love power, but they're saving their money because they love security. And loving money is a means to them getting what they want because in the end what they love is control over their future. A retirement account is great, tons of money in the bank, you know, very frugal lifestyle. Nobody would fault them, right? Especially when you've got all these people over here basically in debt and their credit cards are maxed out because they're spending, spending, spending because they want status or pleasure. These other folks over here are looking down on them because they've got plenty in the bank, but they're, they're no better. They've still got an idol besides Jesus they're worshiping, you know, either power or security or control. It's all man-made, and it's all going to sink your soul. We can add a third category. There's those who spend and who are in debt, and there's those who save, and they're doing great. And then there's those who give, and they want John Klinger to play for them. <laughs> they want people to know it, and they want respect, and they want a reputation. They want... Everybody to know how generous they are. 
And that really is very, very far afield from what Jesus said. Hey, when you're giving, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't make a pomp and circumstance out of it. Do you, do you see how there's different ways that our love of money is really just a symptom of a love for something far deeper and a replacement for Jesus who says, I am your security, I am your control, I am your satisfaction, I am your status, I am your reputation. And spend your money to get more of me. Use your money in purposes that are consistent with the kingdom of God. This is part of the repentance that John the Baptist is teaching us to demonstrate. And this kind of honest appraisal of what's going on in our hearts deeply glorifies God. And in the end, makes us very, very happy people. When we start seeing what's going on in our hearts and start getting some of that that garbage flushed out. Um, The other side of repentance, by the way, repentance is a gold coin Um, on one side is repentance the other side is faith and so God blesses repentant giving because repentant giving is simultaneously believing giving Uh, one of the old prophets used to say Hosea chapter 10 sow for yourselves righteousness reap steadfast love break up your fallow ground For it is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. So when we give out of faith, um, when we do our duty, uh, whatever it is, out of faith, uh, when we repent of our materialism and when we give not under compulsion or reluctance but through repentance and faith, what we're doing is we're, 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 um, I love the imagery that C.S. Lewis uses, we're like a farmer. Uh, He says when we carry out Our religious duties, and giving is one of them, we are like people digging channels in a waterless field, a waterless land, in order that when at last the water comes, it may find them ready. And there are happy moments even now when a trickle creeps along the dry beds and happy souls to whom this happens often. Um, So I'm still pushing against this idea that, well, if you don't feel like giving, you shouldn't give. No, uh, if you don't feel like giving, I need to repent and I need to give because when we, when we do that, when, when we obey, we're glorifying God because it's an act of faith that I'm going to dig this furrow, I'm going I'm to lay this channel in the dry ground because when that rain comes, when God brings those feelings along you know, later on, I am prepared to receive that blessing. If you don't plow the field, guess what happens when the rain comes? The rain runs off. And if you're not doing those disciplines and if you're not practicing obedience and if you're not doing this by faith, trusting that God will bless the giver. When he does bless you, when the rain does come, it's going to run off your soul. So the whole point is this anticipation, this belief that Jesus wasn't lying when he said a full measure pressed down, running over is going to be poured into your lap. I'm not here to tell you what that looks like. And I'm certainly not here to tell you that if you give $20, God's going to give you $200 or $2,000 or whatever nonsense the prosperity gospel teaches. But these are real blessings. They are real. Paul tells the Corinthians in verse 13, look at your passage again, by, by their approval of the service, meaning the saints in Jerusalem who are going to receive this gift, they will glorify God because of your submission, literally 
obedience, because of your obedience that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. It is good to obey. It does bring joy. To not obey because we feel like we're reluctant is going to leave our hearts stony and hard and unable to receive that blessing when it comes. So God loves a cheerful giver. He loves, a, a, he loves giving. He loves a repentant giver. Ultimately, what he's pursuing is our joy. Um, God loves a cheerful giver. When you hear that statement, do you go, do you think to yourself, oh, right, God loves those who have their act together, those who are mature givers, you know, whose hearts are in the right place. Mine's not in the right place. You know, I'm never going to get my act together, et cetera, et cetera. Is that, is that how you interpret that verse? Don't, don't go there. God certainly does love it when our heart's in the right place and we're giving joyfully and cheerfully, but he also loves a broken and contrite heart, a repentant heart. And he loves to bring that broken and contrite heart to a place of satisfaction and joy and praise in his presence. So when it says that God loves a cheerful giver, yes, that's a description of an event, you know, where God's loving that person who's joyful, but it's also a prescription of how do we become joyful people? Well, by giving and by anticipating and believing that God wants that for us. Um, God's not greedy for what you and I can give. He's greedy for what you and I can gain. And the reason why this is so important to him The reason why God loves a cheerful giver is because he is a cheerful giver. He wants his children to bear their father's likeness. He wants us to take on the family resemblance. And when we are not cheerful givers, when we are not enjoying who he is and his kingdom coming and his will being done and using our goods and possessions to see that happen and thrilled to see that happen, that shows the world a false picture of who God is. That's what's at stake. God wants the world to know that he's a cheerful giver. Um, you see in verse 8 and 9, um, all of these descriptions of God's nature and how he's able to make, and listen to the extravagance, all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You know, Paul's just kind of getting a little... A little excited there. Um, And then he quotes Psalm 112. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Describing God. Funny thing is, Psalm 112 is talking about the righteous man. Not God. And Paul is quoting Psalm 112 about a righteous person and saying what's true of that righteous person is also true of God. Do you know why? He's perfectly right to do that is because at the end of the day that's God's purpose for us he wants us to be like him he is the generous cheerful over-the-top giver and he is telling us that he loves it when we are cheerful and he wants us to be cheerful and is working hard toward our cheerfulness and telling us to work toward our own cheerfulness and to stop looking for life and satisfaction and joy and 50-pound bricks that will sink your soul. At the end of the passage, you would almost think, after two chapters, 
2 Corinthians 8 and 9, talking about giving and how wonderful and generous the Corinthians are, you would think Paul would then say, and guys, thanks for your gift. You're amazing. You're generous. I'm so proud of you. Good job. But that's not where he ends in verse 15. Instead, (laughs) Paul says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Thanks be to God, because Paul's focus and his heart is is never out of sync with the gospel that tells us that God is so cheerfully generous that he gave his only son. He would not hold back his son. This inexpressible gift, this over-the-top gift, um, Romans 8 says, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously, generously, cheerfully give us all things? Jesus is the evidence of the generosity of God. God did not have to give us Jesus. We did not deserve Jesus. We were not owed Jesus. And Jesus came and he gave himself, laid down his life for our sins, so that when we believe in him, We might have our sins taken away, our debt taken away, and would receive an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us. And Jesus did that joyfully. For the joy set before him, he went to the cross and endured its shame so that we might have joy. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Not the stuff, not the trinkets, not the... Not the things that God gives us that we pray for, and it's okay to pray for provision, but at the end of the day, he gives us himself. He gives us Jesus. And in the meantime, the world around us continues its ceaseless quest for money. Hunting for it, working for it, diving for it, salvaging it, you know, spending everything they can get to get more of it. And at the end of the day, nobody's going to take even a speck of it with them. Remember, um, remember uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Uh, Roald Dahl, his 100th birthday was this year. Uh, He passed away a while back. But um, in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, uh, you've got the story of, you know, five children. They each get a golden ticket. They each get to go into the Chocolate Factory. So you've got um, Augustus Gloop, Baruch Assault, Violet Beauregard, and Mike TV, and they're all in it for what Willy Wonka can, can give them. Chocolate, gum, you know. Mike T or chocolate television, whatever, Wonka Vision, all that stuff. Uh, they're just in it for what Mr. Wonka's going to give them. But Charlie's different. Charlie doesn't just love the chocolate. He grows to love the man who's given his life to make this chocolate factory the most amazing thing that he can ever imagine. He's given his life to make his candy kingdom. And at the end of the day, because Charlie values that relationship, that joy in uh, in knowing Mr. Wonka, what Charlie gets is not just a lifetime supply of chocolate, but Charlie gets the whole candy kingdom. He gets everything. 
because his heart isn't satisfied in just the stuff. And at the end of the, the story, it's this great picture of Charlie and Mr. Wonka and all of Charlie's family. They are in a relationship. They live happily ever after together. Charlie as a part of Mr. Wonka's kingdom. Is that where your heart is? Have you fallen in love? Are you falling in love with the one who gave his life for his kingdom to bring you and me into that kingdom? To not just give us the stuff of that kingdom, but the kingdom itself. Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good, cheerful, generous pleasure to give you the kingdom. And that's a lot to be thankful for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for providing food and clothing and a place to live and uh, for many of us, uh, jobs and family. Um, and there are things that uh, we know we would like to be fixed or made better, and we bring those needs before you. But we pray that we would not do so um, in a way that forgets all the many blessings that you have given us, and that we would rejoice to have you and to have your kingdom and to never lose sight of our joy in knowing you and being known by you. Lord, would you remind us that you own everything and that everything we have is owned by you and that you've just called us to be stewards of that, managers of what you've provided. And Lord, in doing that, Lord, release our hearts from the lie and the deception of the world that thinks that joy and satisfaction is going to be found in metal. And instead, help us to find our joy and our satisfaction in a person. In Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray in his name. Amen.